uh, first through sixth grade follow Jane, and then the middle school, high schoolers follow this guy right here. And by the way, we forgot to mention that Jeremy's class, Thursday night at 545 CIA. Yeah, Christians in Action, Low Impact Strength and Mobility Training. So if you want to build up your spiritual life and your physical life, be there on Thursday. Light dumbbells. You're talking about, you know, not people. Yeah, okay. All right, just making sure. I'm sorry. I, that's where my mind goes. That's why I'm a preacher. So come on. Man. <laughs> okay. All right, guys. We're getting close to being done with Nehemiah. We're not going to go through the whole book. Uh, we're going to be probably finishing up next week. And, uh, and so chapters eight, uh, 8 and probably 9. But our story takes an important turn today because up until now, Nehemiah is building the walls and the physical. It's a physical labor type of thing. But now his attention is turned to building up the people because it wasn't just the walls that needed renovating. Okay. It wasn't just the walls and the city of Jerusalem need to be restored. It was the people themselves. Have any of you or maybe some of you have someone in your life who just brings out the worst in you. You ever have someone like that? You know, you just get around them and they just bring out the worst version of yourself. Do you have anybody like that? Okay, you're kind of, you know. And so take my friend, fictional friend, mind you. Any of you have a fictional friend that brings out the worst in you? you know, and, I, and I'm going to call him John Doe, just to, you know, change the names, protect the guilty. And so John Doe and... Uh, Here's the deal. John Doe is a proud, self-righteous, bullheaded, dominating, insensitive know-it-all. Okay, and he drives me crazy. You know, he brings out the worst to me. I'm not criticizing, mind you. I'm just making an observation. Bless his heart. But he brings, <laughs> but he brings out the worst in me. All right, so I decided to go talk to John. And on the way, I meet some of John's friends. And I go, he has friends? And they're going, man, yeah, John's an amazing guy. John, you know, and he says, yeah, he, he's so kind and generous and thoughtful and he listens. And I'm going, man, we must have the different guy, you know, because this is not the John Doe I know. So I get to John, I just flat out tell him, John, sometimes you're really a jerk. I do have my moments. Okay. He brings out the worst in me. And he looks kind of sheepish. And he says, you know, and he says, yeah, Doug, there's just something about you that brings out the worst in me. Rule of thumb. If someone brings out the worst in me, I am probably bringing out the worst in them. Okay? That's the first thing I want to start out with because we have this problem. So what if we were to turn it around? Because see, here's the deal. When I find myself angry, frustrated, teed off, peeved, critical, judgmental, upset, or just not happy with someone, there's the certain possibility that the problem is with me and not them. When we talk about bringing out the worst in me, the worst is in me. And I, I think God takes delight in bringing people into my life to reveal those issues in my life. All right, so I look at that. In fact, we were kind of talking about that today in our men's deal, you know, and I've, I shared some things that God had to deal with me and how I was reacting to people and, not, you know, I was that way. But God taught me, what if we can turn that around? What if I could be the person who brings out the best in others? 
There's a thought. What if I can be the person who brings out the best in others, even with those who bring out the worst in me? Is that possible? Can we do that? Isn't that what the Bible tells us to do? Isn't that what Romans 12, 21 means? When Paul says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Yeah. So today I want us to consider how we can bring out the best in others, because I think that's what Nehemiah is doing in this chapter, in chapter 7. First off, back in chapter 6, we, I don't think we've really hit this head on, but just so you know, he's been building the walls. Back in chapter 6, last chapter, verses 15 and 16, it says, The wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. Think about that. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Isn't that awesome? Because it had to be. I mean, God showed up, and these people, you know, and that's what God calls us to be. Experience God, reflect Christ. We want the people to look at us and say, it's got to be God, because there's no way these people could be doing what they're doing if it wasn't for the help of God. It's pretty amazing. And so they completed the physical building project in less than two months. Now, you, two months. So you might think the story's over. Let's run the credits, okay? But it's not, because we're only half, we're not even halfway through the book of Nehemiah. And like I said, we're not going to go through the whole thing. We're going to finish up next week. So what's going on? Well, take a look at chapter 7, verses 1 through 5 with me. After the wall had been rebuilt, I had set the doors in place. The gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. And I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot, while the gatekeepers are still on duty. Have them shut the doors, bar them, also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts, some near their houses. And now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, the common people for registration by families. And I found the genealogical record of those who had been uh, the first to return. And this is what I found written there. The next 61 verses, I'm not going to read them, records the families and the number of Israelites who had returned from Babylon to rebuild and live in Jerusalem. Now, you might read this whole chapter and not see anything interesting or helpful. In fact, it's kind of boring. And, uh, but if you have, if you've ever been in a position of leadership over any type of group of people, you kind of begin, you almost know instinctively what's happening here. And I got to admit, it's not in your face. It's not just stated. I'm preaching out of the subtext in some respects. And, And I'll explain to you why this is. Because there's a really important message in these passages in this chapter. And and the first message is really loud and clear. It begins with learning that people count. Everybody counts. Because in this chapter, he's counting everybody. And we, we don't need to hear it, but he's making sure. Now, who's counting? God is. The same God who leaves 99 and goes after the one. He's counting. Everybody counts. That means every single one of you count. Every single one of you look at listening online count. We have a part to play. And we also learn that the most important assets that the kingdom of God has has nothing to do with finances or buildings. It's people. 
People are the most important assets in anything. And that's what God builds on. Because money and buildings, he can make that out of nothing. But what he's trying to do in our lives is truly a miracle wrought by the Holy Spirit. And so people count and God wants us to be a part of his family. So in Nehemiah chapter 7, verses 66 and 69, we read the count. The whole company numbered 42,360 besides their 7,337 men servants and maid servants. They also had 245 men and women singers. Talk about a worship team. Okay, man, we're not there yet. And uh, there were 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, 6,000 720 donkeys. See, now he's not only counting the people, he's counting the people's stuff. Their resources down to the last donkey. People matter. And everything that God has given us matters. It's a part of what he uses because God has given you everything you have so that you can serve him. Okay, that's the first thing we just need to pay attention to. It's not just about rebuilding Buildings. It's about rebuilding a people, and God is building us. He's renovating us as a people. Let's go back and look at what he does in verses 1 through 5. Verse 1, gatekeepers, singers, and priests were appointed to serve. In verse 2, Hanani and Hananiah were appointed to be leaders. In verse 3, guards were appointed, all kinds of guards, from all the people. And then in verse 5, it says this, the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it. The houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and common people for registration by families. So again, the subtext here, what's going on? Is he just getting everybody together to get their names and have a party? No. He's beginning to get the people together to bring them together as a team, to help them understand they're part of something bigger. He wanted to get them all together in one place so they could see with their own eyes that we are the people of God. We are God's chosen, treasured possession meant to reflect him to the rest of the world. He was bringing together, and we're going to see that next week a little bit more in chapters 8 and 9. He brings everybody together because he wants every single person to get on board with becoming the people of God. And in this chapter, it's all about Nehemiah empowering a people to be who God has called them to be. And I think it's interesting. Nehemiah is not interested in being the top dog. He's not interested in building a little empire for himself. He wanted these people to be the people of God on the own because, in fact, Nehemiah is going to have to leave and go back to Babylon for a while. He does. And so he knows in that time he's gone, these people are going to have to serve God without me. Nehemiah is not concerned about his own power and control. He wants to empower others to work for, live for Jesus and function as a, community, uh, as a community. We see this empowering throughout the Bible. Abraham empowered Isaac. Isaac empowered Jacob. Jacob empowered Joseph. Moses empowered and transferred leadership to Joshua. Eli transferred power to Samuel. Samuel empowered Saul and David. Saul didn't want to empower anybody else, so his kingdom was taken and given it to David. David, in turn, empowered his son Solomon and all the leaders under him. All of God's true leaders, best leaders, were constantly empowering those around him. That's just how it worked. And we go into the New Testament. Well, back to the Old Testament, I forgot. Elijah empowered Elijah. There's a, there's a good story. But go to the New Testament, Jesus himself 
chose 12 apostles and empowered them. Jesus did not come to just do something on his own. He came to empower his people. And it started with the 12 apostles who in turn empowered others. Remember the deacons in Acts chapter 6? Who in turn empower others? And we see Barnabas empowering Paul. And Paul empowering Timothy. I mean, it just, it keeps going. And you just have all this. Paul instructed Timothy to empower still others. He says, and the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. That's what this is all about. We're not to keep it to ourselves. The power that God gives us to serve, we empower others and it keeps going on. But we have to pass it on. We have to empower others. It's not just about leaders either. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, we are all called to empower each other to follow and serve Jesus. In uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. Hebrews 3.13, But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. Romans 15.2, Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build them up. That's what we're supposed to be doing, to be the people of God. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for the building others up and according to their deeds, that it may benefit those who listen. I mean, you know, it gets pretty clear. The Christian faith is all about building up and empowering others and bringing out the best in them to be what God has called them to be. And that's why, you know, we exist. And... Uh, this brings me to a rule I've tried to follow myself. I've preached on it before, and you're going to hear it again today, and the rule goes like this. Every, how many have heard this? All right. Everyone has two jobs. Everyone has two jobs. The job you signed up for, the job you're doing, and the job of praying for and recruiting someone to help you or even replace you. And the church has literally stopped growing because people think they only have one job. My job. You can't have my job. It happens. You can't pry people out of some things. It's like, no, that's my turf. You stay out of it. I mean, it does happen. Okay? And we struggle with it. We really struggle with it. And, uh, and so Nehemiah was doing this. He's, he's getting these people because he wants to empower them to do it without him and to continue on. And I, I just know that's what's going on here. And you, we're going to see, again, we're going to see more in chapter, chapter uh, nine, uh, 8 and 9. And so how do we do this? How, how do we fulfill this thing up here? Well, here's the first thing you do. The first thing is you pray for helpers. You pray for someone to help you. Everything we do begins with prayer. Jesus, this is what Jesus says in Matthew 9. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. I mean, Jesus tells us to pray for help, pray for people to help. Now, prayer does two things for us. It first brings it, it God, it's a God experience. It brings God into the experience. Because I'm really, I, I have a hard time looking for people, finding people. So I say, God, show me some people. Bring God into that process and he will bring them. And so it raises our awareness. And as we pray, we begin looking and we say, oh, this might be an answer to my prayer. Okay, so that's the first thing. And then as we pray, the second thing happens is people will actually start showing up. I don't know where, like, and sometimes they'll even ask, is there anything you need help with? 
Or, or, or you'll look at someone who you've met and then said hello to every morning, and all of a sudden, ding, ding, ding. You know, it's like, wait a minute. This person could do that. And so we, all, we begin with prayer. We start with that. The next thing is to see the positives. One of the reasons we fail to get new people to help is because we don't see the positives. We don't see the gifting. We don't see what they, they can do. Instead, we see the negatives. Well, I don't think they do that. And I'm guilty of that as well. A good example of this is Paul and Barnabas. And uh, it, in Acts chapter 9, you know, remember Paul was persecuting the church. He was hauling Christians off to the you know, prisons and accompanying the mur- their murders. And yeah, this, he was a bad dude. And all the Christians were afraid of him. Then he comes to Jesus. God, God gets a hold of him. Okay. And nobody wanted anything to do with Paul. You know, it's like, stay away from Paul. But there's this guy, Barnabas. Barnabas looks at Paul and he goes, I, I see what's going on here. I see the positive. And he's the one that recruited Paul. What would have happened if Barnabas had never recruited Paul? We would not have a third of our New Testament. The world would not be the way it is today because of Paul. Barnabas saw the positives. And sometimes we just kind of need to put on new glasses and see, you know, what can God do with this person? And uh, again, God has gifted us. And I need to remember that. That you have gifts that I might not even know about, but God knows about. And so I need to give you the opportunity to serve. And if I just don't ask anybody, ask for help, we never find out what that is. In Romans 12, it says, Just as each of us have one body with many members, and these members do not have all the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others, and we have different gifts according to the grace given us. But we can't put those gifts to work unless we know, and we don't know until we ask. Okay? And that brings us to the third thing. The third thing, we, we actually need to ask for help. We actually need to ask. Jesus Recruited the 12 disciples. The 12 apostles recruited others. They were asking, be a part of my team. Now, this is powerful. One of the most powerful ways to build someone up is to ask for their help. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. Asking for help. Even if you don't think you really need it. But it can be difficult to ask for help. Why, why is it hard to ask for help? Maybe because we want to appear like we have it all together. I got this under control. I don't need any help. Maybe it's because we want things done right. And what I mean is my way. Okay, right? Let's get honest. The right way is my way, and your way is, you know, not right. And so we, we have some issues here we got to deal with. Maybe we just want to stay in control. Maybe we just don't want to share our turf. But there comes a point where we need to finally ask the person to help and then tell them what we want them to do and support them and and maybe even recruiting them to another ministry I'm not involved in. You know, I might see someone say, you know, you'd be really good over here. Have you ever thought about doing that? Plant the seed. Number four, trust God to work through others. Now, this is big. And there's two parts to this. The first is you have to really believe that others can get the job done with God's help. You know, if not the same as you, better than you. Okay. And then give them all the power and authority they need. And again, like Jesus in Matthew 10, he called the 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. 
And, uh, but at a deeper level, what you and I are really doing is trusting God to work through others. And I think, you know, again, back to the other point, one of the reasons we don't ask people is because we're afraid they won't do it as well as we do. But you know what we're really afraid of? They might do it better than we do. And I got to tell you, when God shows up, that's very likely they're going to do it better, differently and better. Because I like my way. In 2 Corinthians 3, 5, Paul says, not that we're competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. This is an apostle speaking. In 4, 7, he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not us. And so we've got to believe, when we ask people, we've got to realize what they're going to do is going to glorify God in some way. And I have to trust that God is going to get his job done in spite of what I think. And, uh, and I know this is true of me. I know it's true of you. And finding a place of service is one way God accomplishes his work in your life and my life. And by the way, when I don't ask you, I'm blocking you from experiencing God. I'm an obstacle to you experiencing God and reflecting Christ because I'm not willing to take that step and ask for help. Finally, I need to prepare to be patient and forgiving. And that's just part of it. And, you know, one thing you can count on is people you recruit are going to make mistakes. They're going to do things differently. And sometimes, you know, it's going to drive you nuts. Ephesians chapter 4 be completely humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And again, the thing I have to, you know, forgive is when they fail and don't do as well. And then I have to forgive them when they do it better. That's really, you know, when they do it better, it's like, that's hard. It's ego deflation. Like, I have to get smaller. Like John the Baptist, he knew Jesus was going to be better than him, and he, but John didn't care. That's where we're at. And so, you know, but before I can do all this, there's one final thing that I haven't said here. By, by the way, understand that Mike, me, we got Lauren on board now, he's a pastor, but we have all our other leaders. You need to understand that we are not here to be in control of everything. That's not our job. We are here to empower you. And so, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, it was God who gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare, equip, empower God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. That's our job. Our job is not to do everything, and we're not always going to be around. We got to be a body together. Everybody has to be empowered to do what God calls them to do. But before we can pray, before we can ask, there's one final thing that might need to happen. Before I can ask someone else to do a job, I might need to get a job. I might need to get a job. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Each of us has a job to do. What job are you doing right now? Can you identify it? What assignment is he calling you to do right now? And see, we are not created to just be idle and sit around and, you know, come and consume. God has called each of us to play a part in his kingdom, in the big story that he's, that's unfolding before us. What's your part? What's he calling to you? We are created to be a part of something bigger and eternal than ourselves. Do you see it? Are you doing anything about that?
Have you become a part of the team? If someone came and asked you to help and to become a part of the team, would you say yes? Philippians. That's not up here. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. Man, this is about us. I can't do that by myself. God does that by us working together. And so my challenge to you today is, hey, become a part of the team, get a job, and then pray for and recruit someone to help or replace you. Amen? Let's all be standing for a closing word of prayer. It's pretty amazing, Father, in me that you've chosen to work through us. And I know that I'm probably not the first person to think you're crazy. And we look at each other. We look at ourselves. We look at how fallen we are. We look at how messed up we are. How petty we can be. And how resistant and lazy even. And somehow you work through us. And that's your plan. There is no plan B. And so, Father, open our hearts today to become true servants of you and to be willing to do whatever you ask us, even if it's asking for help. Help us to continue to experience you as a body of Christ and to reflect you in this community as the body of Christ. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.